Hey everyone, uh, welcome. This is not how I intended to preach this sermon, as you well know, uh, but it is how we are doing it this week. Hopefully we'll be back to you in-person services next Sunday, and we can continue our study on the Book of Romans together. But today, we are going to keep on our long, long, long study of the Book of Romans, and this week we're looking in particular at Romans chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. So let me give you a picture of Rome, where the letter's original audience lived, because this backdrop is very significant for understanding all of what the Apostle Paul is trying to instruct the church in Rome about, but in particular, these two verses we're going to talk about today. Rome was a global superpower. It was the global superpower of its day. It dominated every facet of the lives of its citizens. If you imagined Rome like a brand, it wouldn't be Dr. Thunder, okay? It would be like Amazon or Starbucks, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Netflix. It would have been immediately recognizable across the world. Since Rome's empire was vast, they waged a constant war to influence every inch of their empire, and they did so through something we can call the imperial cult. Now, Star Wars fans are like, oh, Imperial, like I've been watching The Mandalorian, I'm all hopped up on Star Wars. Well, it's probably not like that kind of Imperial. I don't know all the things Star Wars, but I know that that word's in there. But Rome's Imperial cult was something different. The symbols of the Imperial cult were everywhere. They were on money, on signs, on statues, in public gatherings, in the marketplace. You couldn't go to the bathroom or buy food in Rome without having to deal with the symbols of the Imperial cult. It was everywhere. So what was it? Well, in a broad perspective that we'll get into in much greater detail over the study of the book of Romans, the imperial cult was calling all of Rome into allegiance, loyalty, and worship to one Lord. And that Lord was Caesar. Caesar was the lord of a vast empire, and if you lived in the Roman Empire, it didn't matter where you had come from, it didn't matter what you liked, what you didn't like, what language you spoke, what religion you practiced, Caesar was your lord because you were in Rome. When Rome asked the question, how do you draw together an empire full of people that you conquered, the answer was, you give them a new god who demands their loyalty. That was the imperial cult. It was a political religion where Caesar was Lord, and if you honored him as such, things would go really well for you. If you did not honor Caesar as Lord, not so much. Things did not go your way if you rejected Caesar as Lord. But the good news that Paul has to share for the church in Rome is proclaiming this. Caesar isn't Lord. Christ Jesus is Lord. And this would have been a startling claim to the church in Rome and to Roman citizens. It's still a startling claim today. And so I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. It'll be on the screen beneath me as I read it so you can follow along. Afterwards, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And there's an invitation for you to give thanks. If you're in your car, if you're at home, if you're watching this late at night, you can even just whisper to yourself, thanks be to God. We're thankful that he's spoken to us, that he hasn't left us in silence. So let me read Romans 1, 1 through 7. We're going to dig into verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord." 
through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Now, maybe if you were observant, you noticed that those seven verses are actually one really long, complex, run-on sentence. And so we're going to go into depth uh, next week on these verses when we're together. But today I want to focus on verses 2, 3, and 4. And this is what I want you to see. The centerpiece of the gospel story is this radical claim. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of David, is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the central claim of the gospel story. Look in verse 2. Paul has introduced himself, and then he says about this gospel of God. He has promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures. You see, when Paul mentions this, he's talking about the Old Testament. Paul's writing from an ancient Jewish perspective. He's writing in just the years preceding the death and resurrection of Christ coming right after those events. And so when he's referencing the Holy Scriptures, he's not yet referencing what we would come to understand as the New Testament witness. He's predominantly uh, uh, calling into our mind uh, the, the witness of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures, the voice of the prophets. When Paul says, through his prophets, he's talking about the Pentateuch first five books of the Old Testament, the historical books, and the wisdom literature and the voice of the prophets. And he connects the coming of Christ Jesus to King David, right? Concerning what has been the message that the Holy Scriptures have delivered, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, Paul wants the church in Rome to hear two crucial things about this gospel of God that the Old Testament prophets bore witness to. He's saying that this was concerning Jesus Christ our Lord, who is Son of God, Son of David. Now, we have spent many, many, many sermons talking about the role of Son of David. But to call Jesus the Son of David was to say this, Israel Jewish community, this is the rightful king that you have long awaited. This is the expected Messiah. This is the anointed one, the one who will be, yes, king of Israel and also king of the world. See, because Christ Jesus isn't just the rightful son of King David, King Israel, in conquering the grave in his resurrection, he is shown to be who he truly is. He's not merely king over Israel, he's king over all. You see, the crucial difference that Paul immediately puts his finger on between Jesus Christ, the king of the world, and Caesar, who many in Rome had heard was really king of the known world, is this. Caesars die. All of them. All of the Caesars die. The good ones, they die. The bad ones, they die. The beautiful ones, they die. The ugly ones, they die. The successful ones, they die. The failing ones, they die. All Caesars die. But this Lord, this Lord doesn't die. And he doesn't merely avoid death. 
through the power of his resurrection from the dead, he is shown to be the one who has conquered death and who will conquer death. And in Paul's mind, it is this reality, the resurrection of Jesus, that demonstrates that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Now keep in mind who he's speaking to. The church in Rome, as we talked about last week, is composed of two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. And it's important that when we hear the word Lord, we recognize that Jews and Gentiles, they would have heard that word differently. And this is part of the beautiful complexity of God's word. Don't you love God's word that it just speaks with such clarity and it has such rich meaning? Because we just read this and say, Jesus Christ, our Lord. A lot of us use the word Lord and we kind of feel like, ah, maybe we don't really know what that means. We, we know it's a title given to Jesus. We know it's a good thing to call Jesus, that Jesus is our Savior and Lord or our Lord and Savior. But we don't really necessarily know what Lord meant. But to the original audience, it would have had two very significant dimensions. For the Jewish community, for the Israelites, for the Hebrew context, it would have conjured up this idea of covenant king. Lord would have carried with it this idea of covenant king. Depending on the words usage in the Old Testament, you will find Lord in all caps occasionally. This was a reference to the covenant name of God, which the Old Testament would translate as Lord all caps or Adonai. Uh, this would be this idea that, uh, that we do not want to misuse the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And so we'll translate it this way in order to protect the integrity or the sanctity of that name. And so when you read Lord in all caps, in your Bible, this is the scriptures trying to tell you, translators trying to tell you, this is a use of the name of God, Yahweh, okay? So when Israel heard Jesus Christ, our Lord, they immediately went to covenant God, the covenant God, the Yahweh who has been faithful to deliver them out of Egypt and keep them throughout all of their exile and who has now come in Jesus Christ. This is the name revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So when the Jewish community in this church in Rome, was Phoebe reads the letter, hears Jesus Christ, our Lord, their mind immediately goes to the covenant keeping. God of Israel. Now the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans and those from other nations who had assembled at this church in Rome, when they heard the word Lord, do you know what they heard? It wasn't a covenant keeping God. It was a political term. So when they hear Lord, they're not immediately thinking of all of Israel's story and this faithful God who kept them through the ages. They're thinking of Caesar. Because they have been trained in the marketplace, in the bathroom, buying groceries, buying food, paying taxes, that Lord, that's a title, and the person who has it is one person, and that person is Caesar. So they're having a very different experience. When Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord here, for the entire church in Rome, it would have been an immediate impact, but it would have impacted them differently. Half the room would have heard, who is this Jesus Christ who's greater than Caesar? And the other half would have heard, who is this Jesus Christ who was the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises? That's incredibly rich and nuanced and textured. And Paul is speaking to this church knowing that they will hear both sides of the word and he wants them to. He wants them to. You see, to say that Jesus Christ is Lord is to say something theological and political at the very same time. 
To say that Jesus Christ is Lord is to say something theological. It's to say that this is the one who has created and upholds the universe by the power of his mighty right hand. That nothing is outside of his care and governance. And most importantly, he will keep his people forever. You see, we talked about last week that there's a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the gospel. The Israelite imagination was really geared towards this vertical understanding of us and God. When they heard the word Lord, they heard about Yahweh who keeps covenant. This is the idea that Jesus Christ is our covenant Lord, our covenant Lord. He is the one who has secured all of the promises and blessings and salvation of God. He has done that for his people. So we have to keep that and hold that. When we say Jesus Christ is Lord as Christians, we are to mean by that in one very important sense, that he is our covenant head. He is our representative before God and all of the promises of salvation that God has granted, he has granted them in one place and in one place alone, and that is in our covenant Lord, Jesus Christ, the proper fulfillment of all of Israel's waiting and the proper hope of all of our broken hearts. He is our covenant Lord. That's that vertical dimension of the gospel, but it doesn't just stop there, right? Because Paul has used this term to capture both this vertical impact of the gospel and this horizontal impact. So to say Jesus Christ is Lord is to say something theological. He's our covenant Lord. He keeps God's blessings of salvation for his people. But it's also to say something political, that Jesus Christ is the world's rightful king, and his kingdom is better than the best of the kingdoms of this world, and that this kingdom has come, and where has it come? Not on a throne in Rome, but on a throne on Golgotha. Not a throne with a, a crown of, of olive branches, but, but a crown of thorns. This king is different than Caesar. This king doesn't kill in order to rule. This king is killed in order to rule. This is very different. This is a very different king and a very different kingdom. And so to say something political is not merely to start it saying that God is our, uh, that Jesus Christ is our covenant Lord, but the political dimension to this, the horizontal aspect, is that he is cosmic Lord. Christ isn't just Lord over his people. He's Lord over the whole world. And his kingdom, it's not merely contained in his people. The whole world is his kingdom. He's not just rescuing for himself a people. He's restoring the order of the world. God's righteous rule isn't just about me and you going to heaven when we die. It's about the reality that this king, this king who is greater than Caesar, is bringing heaven here. And one day, it will stretch over the corners of the world. East, west, north, and south, everything will be the kingdom of God. Why? Because Caesar has made it so? No because Christ has made it so. Why is this good news? Why is it good news for the church in Rome and for us that Christ is Lord and Caesar is not? Well, let me tell you this. If Christ is Lord, death has been and will be defeated because he has conquered death. But if Caesar is Lord, death will conquer us. If Christ is Lord, then death has been and will be defeated. If Caesar is Lord, death is an inevitability and it wins. If Christ is Lord, his kingdom cannot be shaken or defeated. But if Caesar is Lord, his kingdom will rise and fall, and all who trust in it will rise and fall with it. Why is it good news that Christ Jesus is Lord, the rightful king of the world, 
Because in his kingdom, he rules through mercy and grace, not through fear and slavery. You see, what Paul says here is one of the central things that means the gospel will always be at odds with the stories in the world around us. Because every other story is bent on ignoring or rejecting the central claim of the gospel story, which is this. Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. This has always been at odds with the false stories of the world and it will always be at odds with the false stories of the world. To paraphrase Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, that Christ is either Lord over everything or Lord over nothing. The world is not to be bargained with, with the cosmic and covenant Lord. We don't get to come before the Lord and say, these are the pieces of me and the pieces of the world you get to have. Christ is either who he says he is, and he's Lord over everything, or he's Lord over nothing. Kuiper goes on to say, there's not one square inch in all of creation that Christ does not point out and say, mine. Everything belongs to Jesus. Not just our hearts, but our world belongs to him. He's greater than Caesar because he has secured the salvation of his people. Not through triumphing over them, but by triumphing for them. He secured the world and the reordering of the world, not through imperial rule and political prowess, but through the compassion of the cross and the resurrection and by the very power of the Spirit of God. Christ is our covenant Lord who keeps us when we fail and waver. He is our cosmic Lord who invites us to live lives marked by obedient faith under the rule of his kingdom. He is Christ Jesus, our Lord. He is the center of the gospel, and he is good. He is good. What does it mean for you and I that Christ Jesus is covenant Lord and cosmic Lord? Let me give you one thing to think about as we go into this week. The good news that Christ Jesus is covenant Lord and cosmic Lord means this. It means that you can go out into the world intent to live a bold and courageous and countercultural life of obedience to God, knowing that there is joy and reward to be found there. That's the cosmic Lord thing, aligning yourself with Christ's kingdom. But because he's also our covenant Lord, you can know this, that if and when you fail in living out the obedience to God's kingdom, do you know what you'll find? Do you think you'll find chains? There will be no more chains. Do you think that you'll find death? There's no more death. Do you think that you'll find judgment or his wrath? The judgment and wrath are already poured out. Why? Because he's our covenant Lord. This is why we need the vertical and the horizontal dimensions of the gospel. How can we be a people who live countercultural lives if we feel like God's love for us is contingent on how successful we are? We'll never make that bet. The margin of error is too high. The risk is too great. But when we know that Christ Jesus is our covenant Lord and that in him we are held fast forever, well then, then we can go out and pursue holiness and humility, excellence and integrity. We can live as salt and light in a dark and bland world. Why? Because nothing can separate us from our covenant Lord Jesus Christ. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We ask that you would bless us, that you would bless us as your people.
that you would shape us into the image of Christ Jesus. We thank you for your word, even in a winter storm, that we are reminded of the warmth of the gospel. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Christ, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.